Let's pray together. Lord God, we're eternally thankful for the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We're thankful that though we have never seen Jesus physically with our own eyes, the story of his love is recorded in your word. You've revealed yourself to to us through him and as recorded in your word. And we look forward to the day when we will see him with our own eyes, when our faith shall be made sight. Until that day, we're so thankful for your word that you've spoken to us. And we pray now as we open your word and seek to listen to it, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and that we would see Jesus and we'd hear Jesus and we'd respond to him in deeper faith and obedience. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I suppose it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that bearing a burden is a real burden. All right? Carrying weight is hard work. That's what a burden is. It's a weight. So carrying weight, whether it be uh, groceries in from the car or those branches and limbs that are still in your backyard from the ice storm or whether it be pumping iron at the gym, carrying weight, bearing burdens is hard work. We sometimes call domesticated animals beasts of burden. Because before the advent of things like planes and ships and trains, we would load heavy burdens upon these animals. Animals like oxen and horses, camels, donkeys. And we'd have those animals bear our burdens to carry things that either we couldn't carry on our own or just carry things that we didn't want to carry on our own. There are some burdens, some things in life which we must bear, some things that we have to carry. Think about for a moment a running back on a football team. A running back must carry not only the burden of the football down the length of the field, but sometimes a big fullback might have to carry half the opposing team on his back across the goal line in order to score a touchdown to win the game, right? And he carries that burden for the good of the team and for the glory of the school or the franchise. Or maybe even better, think about the fact that a mother must carry, must bear the burden of her child. There's no other way to bring a human being in the world unless a mother carries a child through her pregnancy. And that's hard work. Sure, many of you ladies could attest to that. You can ask my wife Rachel if it's hard work. She would gladly be relieved of carrying our third child for one more day. But even after pregnancy, parents still bear the burden of carrying their children, don't they? Moms and dads and aunts and uncles and friends. They all carry these little children for the first few months of their lives before they can walk. So bearing children, we could say, is bearing a burden. But 
a mother or parents, they do that gladly for the good of the child and for the glory of the family. So while it's work, it's a joyous work. Well, as Christians, we have a burden to bear. We don't have a physical weight to carry, but we have a spiritual burden to bear. And that burden is carrying the weighty good news, the good news about Jesus, taking it, carrying it to people who don't yet know who Jesus is, who haven't yet turned from sin and trusted him. And we know from God's word, we know from the words of Jesus himself that we are called to this responsibility of bearing the burden of the gospel to people who don't yet know him. And I'll just be honest from the outset, this bearing the burden of the gospel, what we typically call evangelism, it's hard work. It really is. And frankly, I think that's why we don't do it as much as we ought. Because we are afraid of the thought of this burden. But, as I said, God's word makes it clear that we are to take this, carry this message of the good news of Jesus to people who don't yet know him. So as we think about this concept, this task of evangelism, this bearing the burden of the gospel, I'd like to ask two questions this morning. First, why must we bear the burden of the gospel? And secondly, how must we bear the burden of the gospel? I'd like to answer those two questions, the why and the how question, from Matthew chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 35 to 38. And from the Gospel of Matthew, we'll seek to answer these questions. Why must we bear the burden of the gospel? And how must we bear the burden of the gospel? Matthew says... In chapter 9, starting in verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I think that Jesus' compassionate look there in verse 36 offers us an answer to our first question. Why we must bear the burden of the gospel. Quite literally, as Jesus looked at the crowds in town after town, in village after village, in synagogue after synagogue... He looked at them and he had a gut reaction. A gut reaction of compassion. In fact, the word compassion could be translated as a, a gut ache. He, he looked at these people and he felt deeply for them. In his inmost being, he was moved to compassion. And I was wondering this week, why compassion? Why was that the first emotion of Jesus as he looked on these crowds. 
I mean, why didn't he look at these big crowds that were following him all over the place and respond not with compassion but with joy? Wow, look what a huge following I have. I have a lot of fans. Isn't this great? Or why didn't he look at the crowds with disdain? Ugh, those crowds again, those stinking Dirty crowds, those sinful crowds. I can't escape them. Or why not fear? Why didn't he look at those crowds and think to himself, what's that large group of people doing here? Is this some sort of lynch mob? Is somebody out to get me? But Jesus didn't respond immediately with joy or with disdain or with fear. He responded with Compassion. A real heart of compassion. So why compassion? Well, look closely again at verse 36. Matthew says, He had compassion on them because, listen up, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved to compassion because of their condition. He looked at them and he saw them as harassed and helpless and leaderless. And that caused him to feel deep compassion for them. Now he wasn't looking at them literally like sheep, but the metaphor is helpful for us to consider. If there is a flock of sheep out in the wilderness somewhere without a shepherd, who's going to lead those sheep to green pastures and quiet waters. Nobody. They're helpless. They're just sheep out in the wilderness. They don't know what to do. Or if these sheep are out in the wilderness and they're shepherdless, who is going to protect them from the wolves in the dark night? Who's going to keep them from the harassment of these wolves who want to kill them? These bloodthirsty, ravenous animals. No one. They're harassed. And so Jesus doesn't think, oh, these people, they're hungry. I need to feed them like I feed sheep. Or these people, they're harassed and there's a military force advancing. I need to protect them. No, he's thinking about their spiritual condition. He says, spiritually speaking, these people are harassed and helpless. And they have no spiritual leader. I think Jesus had an especially significant amount of compassion for their situation because he knows that religious leaders in his own day and age and for decades and centuries before him had been not acting like the shepherds they ought to have been. Instead of being shepherds, they had been acting like wolves. You can read from the prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah about how the Lord called the religious leaders out and said, you despicable false shepherds. Hear these words from Ezekiel. A few centuries before Jesus was on the scene, he says, Therefore, you shepherds, he's speaking to the religious leaders of the day, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, 
And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. So Jesus is saying, for centuries these people have been harassed and helpless. And my gut reaction is one of compassion for their situation. He sees these people as helpless. I think probably like the prophet Isaiah describes all of humanity as helpless. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. In other words, as human beings born into this fallen world, we are by nature sinners in rebellion against God, helpless, blinded by our own sin. But we're not only helpless, Jesus says we're also harassed. Jesus says the religious leaders of that day and age were gobbling these people up instead of taking care of them. And the same could be true today. People believe all sorts of lies by false spiritual leaders or other people out in society. And I think ultimately behind the lies of those false leaders back then and whoever is speaking lies to people today is the biggest liar of all, Satan himself, who Peter describes as one who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. These people are harassed. And Jesus sees them and that moves him to compassion because he knows that people are helpless because of their own sin and they're harassed by the lies of others. And without him, they're headed for a Christless eternity in hell. How do we look at the crowds? Do we look at the crowds like Jesus with compassion? Do we look at the crowds of our largely unbelieving world with compassion? My fear is that we see the crowds at a nice place like South Church on a beautiful April morning. And our immediate reaction isn't compassion, but rather it's one of premature joy. Because we fail to remember that there are certainly people in our midst, in a large church like this, who are still helpless because of their own sin. They're still harassed by the lies of the devil. Now, I'm grateful for opportunities to come and worship together, but let's open our eyes and recognize that within the crowds around places like South Church, there are still people to be saved. Or I wonder, when we look at the crowds in public places like the malls or the stadiums or the concert venues, do we look at them with compassion or do we look at them with disdain? Oh, can you believe what they're singing, what they're saying, what they're doing? Those sinners, they disgust me. I want nothing to do with them. 
Or I fear that we see the growing crowds, and I do think they're growing, the growing crowds in our voting booths, in the courts of our land, out on social media. Do we respond to those crowds with compassion or with fear? Do we say, those people are out to destroy our culture? They're ruining our society? They're persecuting the church? And they very well may be doing that. I'm not denying that. But will we look at them with fear and, and sort of retreat to our own little holy huddles? Or will we look on even those adversaries with compassion, knowing that they too are helpless and harassed without a shepherd? We need to be like Jesus, friends. We need to look at the crowds as helpless and harassed. And we need to recognize that only the good news of the gospel will bring them the saving grace and eternal life that they so desperately need. So why must we bear the burden of the gospel? Well, I think first we must bear the burden of the gospel for the sake of others' souls. For the sake of the souls of others. But that's not the only reason we must bear the burden of the gospel. We also need to bear the burden of the gospel for the sake of God's fame, for his glory. You see, while the religious leaders of the day had failed to shepherd the crowds, God says, I will shepherd my people. Ezekiel again, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As shepherds looks as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. God himself is the greatest shepherd. He's rescued us by his grace through the work of his son on the cross in the empty tomb. The work is complete. We need to proclaim that good news for everyone to hear. And when we do that, God will be made famous. I recently read an account of a bomb disposal expert who had worked with the British Army in Afghanistan. This gentleman was killed in October of 2009. But an officer spoke of his admiration for this man in these moving words. Staff Sergeant Oz Schmid was simply the bravest and most courageous man I have ever met. Under relentless IED and small arms attacks, he stood taller than the tallest. He opened the road for the battle group to use, and 24 hours later found and disarmed 31 IEDs on another route. Everyone adored working with him. I adored working with him. He saved our lives time after time, and he will retain a very special place in the heart of every rifleman in our extraordinary battle group. Superlatives do not do justice to this man. Better than the best of the best. If a soldier is moved to call one of his fellow soldiers who laid down his life for these men is better than the best than the best, how much more should we say, Jesus is better than the best of the best? He just is. He's the one who opened the road for us to eternal life. 
He's the one who laid down his life. He's the one who saves us over and over and over again. Jesus is better than the best of the best. And so when we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, the good news, it's an opportunity to make Jesus famous. He's worthy. So why must we bear the burden of the gospel? First, certainly, for the sake of others' souls. But secondly, and I would argue primarily, for the sake of God's fame. Let's make God famous and let's care compassionately about other souls by bearing the burden of the gospel. That was our first question, but our second question is important as well. How must we bear the burden of the gospel? Jesus helps us answer this question in verses 37 and 38. Having already observed the spiritual condition of the crowds, he turns to those who are already following him, his disciples, and he says these words in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus makes an assessment. He says the harvest is plentiful. It's great. But he notes a deficiency. The workers, they're few. They're little. And so in response, he makes a command. He says, pray, ask, even beg that the Lord of the harvest will send out more harvest workers. You see, Jesus sees the helpless and harassed crowds not just as pitiable, but he sees them as an opportunity. He says these crowds, they're like a field of opportunity. They're ripe and ready to be reaped into the kingdom of God. But the tragedy is, there's no one there to reach them. There are no gospel workers out there calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus. The text switches from one agricultural metaphor to another. First, Jesus sees the crowds like helpless sheep, and then he describes the crowds as a field of opportunity. Now Jesus' disciples, they would have been familiar with this agricultural image. I mean, they were probably familiar with harvesting grain or picking fruit from a vine. Not only had they probably witnessed it, they probably participated in this sort of harvesting this is a little more challenging for us to understand because we're so far removed from the farm. Our society is increasingly suburban and urban. And even those of us like me who grew up in rural agricultural contexts, the image is still really hard for us to totally appreciate because we have the benefit of automated and mechanized farming. I mean, for instance, my father can harvest his 2,500 acres of corn by himself with just two or three other men using big machinery. He doesn't need a lot of laborers. Please don't get me wrong. It's incredibly hard work, and it's very time-consuming. But he doesn't need a lot of workers. Not so in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, when the harvest was ready... You needed workers. 
a great number of workers, and you needed them immediately. Because think about it. Who wants to eat overripe fruit? Who wants to eat the black banana in the fruit bowl? Nobody. It's worthless. And how difficult it is once wind or rain has beaten down grain to even harvest it properly. So he's saying, not only is the need and the opportunity great, but the need is urgent. You need to get out there and pick this crop. So I was trying to think of an image that we could all appreciate and maybe relate to. So try this one on for size. Let's, let's imagine for a moment that we have a big field of strawberries. Like acres upon acres of strawberries. And I did a little research, and I stand to be corrected. If you're a strawberry farmer, please tell me. I don't like it when people get agricultural stuff messed up. But as far as I could tell, while there are some robotic strawberry harvesters and some mechanized strawberry harvesters, even today, in 2014, the best way to pick a strawberry still is picking it by hand. So if we've got acres upon acres of strawberries and it's getting to be June, early July, and these strawberries are ripe, we're going to need lots of people to get out in the field. Because if you've ever been to a you-pick farm on an abnormally hot day in late June and you're down on your hands and knees and you start picking berries and you look and every other berry is not red and plump and firm, but it's mushy and brown and half-fermented and just plain nasty... You know what happens? So we need to get lots of people out there on their hands and knees to pick our berries. Jesus is trying to paint a picture of tragic proportion. Great opportunity and no workers. Or very, very few workers, that is. And so what does he say to do in response to this great need, this urgent opportunity? He says in verse 38, ask. Or some versions say, plead or beg or pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers into his harvest field. You see, God owns these crowds of harassed and helpless people. They're his field, if you will. And he stands ready to send out workers into the field, but Jesus says, has anyone asked him? Has anyone relied on and depended on God in prayer and asked him to send out more workers? Are you just standing there, sitting on your hands, fretting that the crop's going to go bad? He says, no, pray. Beg that the Lord would send out more workers. And notice, he doesn't say, pray that the Lord will send out more supervisors and managers and bosses. He says, send out more laborers. People who are willing to get their hands dirty for the sake of the gospel. So by all means, please, please keep praying that God would raise up pastors and missionaries and seminary professors. We need them. But don't forget to pray that God would raise up ordinary, everyday Christians to be workers for the gospel. To be bearing the burden of the gospel to the helpless and harassed crowds. And don't be surprised if you are the answer to your own prayers. We need people to be out there 
out there in the world, out there in our society, in our schools and governments and universities and marketplaces and neighborhoods and homes. We need people out there ready to reap people into the kingdom of God. So we need to start getting busy. We need to get our hands dirty. We need to get to work with the work of evangelism. So to try to summarize or answer this question of how we must bear the burden of the gospel, I'd like to offer three action points. Three things that I think everybody in this room can do. Must do. And I've alliterated them with the letter I for the sake of your memory. Okay, so first, we must implore. It's just a fancy way of saying pray. We must pray earnestly that God would send out more workers. The easiest way to obey God's word is just to do what Jesus says, right? He says pray. There's still crowds and crowds of people that are harassed and helpless. Let's do the same thing that he asked the disciples to do way back then. Pray that the Lord would send out more harvest workers. I was reminded by this text that prayer is essential to the work of evangelism. Now, we oftentimes think in terms of praying for the lost, praying for the not-yet-believers. And that's important. We ought to be praying that God would soften their hearts and open their eyes. Because without the Holy Spirit's work, they won't come to faith in Jesus. We ought to pray for them to get a glimpse of who Jesus is from his word. But this text reminds us that we must also pray for the workers who will reach the lost. That God would raise them up in the first place and equip them to do the work of gospel telling. So start imploring and praying. If you're not in the habit of doing this already, I would encourage you to think about it in this sort of way. What if you sat down with your family or your friends each day around a meal and prayed for whatever you were going to pray for, but also begged the Lord to, to raise up more gospel workers? Second, we must invite. Jesus' method of gospel work is summarized back in verse 35 when it says he was teaching in all their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom. A gospel work back then and gospel work today ought to be the same. It ought to be characterized by good teaching and good preaching, explaining the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. It might sound old-fashioned, but that's what works. And you can explain and proclaim over a cup of coffee at Big B or in your home or at a lunch break. But sometimes those conversations, those personal evangelism conversations, they stall out. So why not invite them to a place where they can hear people teach and preach the gospel? Why not bring your non-believing friends to church? Novel idea, I know. But... The Easter season presents us with lots of great opportunities, a little bit different from the norm. So you already heard the announcements. Palm Sunday concert for non-believing friends who might like music. Good Friday, if you could sneak away with a co-worker for an hour. One o'clock, April 18th. Or on Easter morning, when a lot of people, for whatever reason, whatever motivation, are very willing to come to church. We'll have our normal services on Easter morning. 9.35 and 11.05 here in the balance services and 10.55 in the creative service. And I'd like you to think about 
the person who you would invite to Easter. And actually pick them up or ask them if they want to ride with you or sit with you. And for the sake of the gospel, consider that if they would sort of fit in or feel more comfortable in the creative service, that you would actually give up your own preference for the sake of the gospel and worship with them over there. It might not be comfortable, but you do that, bearing the burden of the gospel for the sake of their soul and for God's fame. You could also invite them to Christianity Explored. It starts on May 4th. It's an evangelistic study of the gospel of Mark. We do it a few times a year here. Sunday evening with me and Pastor Joel, and we'll walk through the gospel of Mark, asking these questions and answering them from Mark. Who was Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? I've been praying, I've been imploring the Lord that he would raise up 26 people for Christianity Explored this spring. You say, why 26? It's kind of a random number. Here's my rationale. On an average Sunday, there are usually about 1,300 people at South. I figured if just 1% of you decided I'm going to invite a friend to Christianity Explored, then we'd have 13 pairs of people. You have 26 people there studying the gospel of Mark. That'd be great. I'm going to keep praying for those 26 people. Or you can invite them to events like Home Plate or the 5K or to VBS. And when you think about these things, Home Plate, 5K, VBS, it's certainly good and right that you'd invite your own friends and family and kids. But will you invite someone else to join you? These are opportunities for them to interact with your church family or to hear some preaching or teaching or testimonies. Let's do evangelism as a team, folks. You don't have to do it alone. It's too daunting. Bear the burden together. Invite them. And thirdly, we must invest. We invest in all sorts of things in life, but I was thinking especially we invest in education for the sake of our professions. Or we invest in jobs training for the sake of our careers. Have you invested in becoming a more equipped gospel worker? I'm so sad, literally sad, that the evangelism course in Equippers was attended by only two people. Two people. It's a great course. I'm going to rerun the course. It's called Two Ways to Live, and it uses a little gospel tract to help us explain the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Bible. And I'm praying that just 13 people would join me for that course sometime this summer. I haven't even picked the dates yet, but I want to leave the ball in your court. I want to provide you this opportunity. I'd say, if you're interested in investing and learning how to use a little tool called Two Ways to Live to help explain the good news of Jesus, will you email or call me this week? And we'll put a list together and we'll find a date that works for the 13 of you to be more prepared, more equipped gospel workers. Or you might also invest by reading a good book. My favorite book on evangelism is called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. There's a couple good things about this book. It's short, it's powerful, and it's cheap. You can get it new on Amazon for like $9 or less. So maybe you should 
sit down and you say, I'm not moved by compassion, but I need to read something that will help move me to compassion, evangelism and the sovereignty of God would be a great one to pick up. Whatever the case, let's implore and invite and invest in the days ahead. I'd like to close with these words from Isaiah 52, where he says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. South Church, do people know us to be people? Do people know you to be people with beautiful feet? Beautiful feet that bear the burden of the gospel for the sake of other souls and for the glory of God. If so, praise God. And let's continue doing that. But if not... Let's get to work. Let's be moved by compassion to go to the harvest fields where there are loads and loads, crowds and crowds of helpless, harassed, shepherdless people who need Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, your word has spoken clearly to us. Now empower us to obey. Challenge us, change us for your glory, and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.